Hello, I am Sarah Ruffi, the Woman Warrior Lawyer, and today my guest is David Kreckler. Mr. Kreckler, would you care to introduce yourself and briefly tell us what you do? Sure. I'm David Kreckler. I solve financial problems, primarily for businesses and farms that are in financial trouble. It's a very rewarding uh, line of work, uh, helping people, keeping people employed. When I'm not doing that, I am either out exercising in this frigid weather, I'll be inside tonight, uh, or I'm uh, maybe having my grandpa's Sunday dinner with my family. And would that be uh, when David Kreckler, bartender extraordinaire, takes over? Uh, yes, we do try to do cocktail of the week on Sunday nights. And who comes up with the cocktail of the week? Uh, I have some books with different cocktails in them, and we try them. And sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're horrid. Uh, but we, we, we do experimenting, not every week, but often. So what's been the biggest success when it comes to the cocktail experiments, and then the most horrific one? Oh, I don't know about the most horrific. There have been a bunch there. Um, and I'm going to be at a loss for names, uh, but I can tell you what they look like. One is that my wife really likes is a bright blue, something like a, a blue shark, I think, electric shark. That's the name of it. I'd be happy to send you the recipe. Uh, and then we make one uh, coming up next month uh, because we've done it the last two St. Patrick's Days. Instead of just having Guinness beer, we make a sort of rose colored, in fact, I think it's called Wild Irish Rose. And that's been one of my favorites. I've liked that one so much that I actually have um, given it as a wedding present where I'll include the liquor and the glasses and the, the, the um, mixes that go with it. And uh, that's how much we like that one. Well, and my Wild Irish Rose sounds a bit Irish and Kreckler doesn't seem to be in the Irish genre. Not at all, but I married an Irish woman. <laughs> now you got the connection. So before we get too far in, gotta ask the 800 pound gorilla, is he joining us this evening? And tell us a little bit about your 800 pound gorilla in the room. Well, you know, I don't, it makes a nice background. It's a good conversation piece. And it actually came about uh, with some lawyers that you might know. Uh, there was a lawyer named Mark Bromley. Uh, Mark was from Lancaster, Grant County, Southwest area of the state. He was a well-known bankruptcy lawyer. We became close friends. Mark is retired now. His, his last decade or so of practice, he uh, worked for the Department of Justice. And then there was another lawyer who was also a bankruptcy lawyer named Jim McNeely. Jim practiced in La Crosse and he practiced down in Racine. Uh, he's now with the Department of Revenue, but the three of us are among the older bankruptcy gentlemen in the state, and we get together when there's not a pandemic, and we have what we call the silverback lunches, silverbacks being old gorillas, and so because we are all silverbacks, I sort of adopted this fine-looking ha uh, handsome guy behind me as my mascot. Very interesting. David, with you, it's always an interesting story for everything. So did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? No. What were uh, you going to be when you were a kid? What did you want to aspire to be when you well, grew up? When I was a kid, actually, yes, because I always liked Perry Mason. Are you old enough to remember Perry Mason? Only reruns, David, only okay. reruns. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the originals, uh, but uh, in my family, uh, Saturday night was spent at Grandma Kreckler's house, and we would always eventually end up in front of the television, and Perry Mason, I really liked it. So when I was a little kid, I thought about law, but then later that wasn't on my radar, but it, it somehow popped up again uh, back, uh, uh, I, I didn't take a normal course, I didn't go high school, college, law school, I went high school, college, college, travel and mess around and get in trouble. And then I went to law school. So when you went to college, what were you going to be? Business major. Oh, I can relate to that. 
And it, I think it served me very well in my field uh, with what I do, helping financially troubled businesses. I find it every day, it's valuable that I have some background in things like accounting and even marketing. Um, it's really proven to be good, I think. Well, and as a business lawyer, um, I was never going to be a lawyer, not even watching Perry Mason or um, Andy Griffith. Who was he? Matlock. Okay. That I'm like, who does that? Who in their right mind does that? And maybe that's a discussion for a different day as to some people may say we just aren't in our right mind. Um, you said high school, college, college, traveling, getting in trouble, and then law school. So what drove you to law school? What made you decide that that is going back to your childhood? I do want to become a lawyer, just not necessarily a Perry Mason lawyer. A couple of things. Uh, so I was um, during my last portion of getting my bachelor's degree. And then for a couple of years after that, uh, I worked in a grocery store in St. Louis, which is where I'm from. Uh, union job paid really well. Uh, and so I had a lot of disposable income uh, being a single guy. I lived with three other single guys. And so collectively, we had oodles of money and we had a wonderful house. Uh, we didn't own it. We rented a house, but it was in a, a suburban neighborhood in St. Louis uh, with lots of young married couples with children. And then there's these four guys who are just the wild partiers on the block. And we had huge, so this is old enough, Sarah, this would have been 1975 about. Uh, so back then there were huge quadraphonic sound systems, speakers almost as big as me. I'm and, sure your neighbors uh, loved you. And they did love us. We had a, we had a refrigerator, but we also had a second refrigerator with a tap through the door um, for beer kegs. <laughs> and we had, uh, at the time, the, the biggest television on the regular market, an RCA XL100. Uh, and we also had the most advanced video games, which back then were Pong. Maybe some of your listeners and viewers will remember Pong. But in, in, in essence, oh, we had waterbeds. And we, we even had guest waterbeds. Uh, oh, my. So uh, we were these party animals, and all the neighbors wanted to be at our house uh, and were. They would take turns watching their kids so the other one could come over at night. And uh, that, that was a lot of fun for a while. Uh, but after about two years of this, uh, it kind of got old and I said, I got to do something. So I uh, took the LSATs and did phenomenally well. And uh, pretty much, so when you take the LSATs, the law SATs, uh, you, back then you got to send your results to two schools. Uh, and I sent mine to the University of Missouri and the University of Missouri in Kansas City, neither of which are great law schools, in, at least at the time, you know, not, not national renowned for law. Uh, but then I got my score back and it was so high that I then applied at Harvard and Yale and Columbia uh, and Berkeley. I applied at all the top law schools, probably the top 30 law schools in the country. Uh, I got rejected at Harvard and Yale and Columbia uh, but I did get into the next tier of law school. So like starting around number eight or so, I was able to get into uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Big Ten schools back then, maybe they still are, were fairly high. They were that second tier of schools. And uh, I wanted to stay in the Midwest. And so I, um, I actually was going to go to Illinois, uh, but I uh, had money. I had saved cash because remember, I told you I was making good money. So I had, I had about four or $5,000 saved and uh, Illinois didn't want to give me any financial aid because I had this cash. Um, and I called them and talked to them. I said, well, that's silly. I mean, I worked my way through school and I'm, cause I was working the whole time I went to college um, on my own. And uh, then I, and I saved up this money and I'm going to need it. And they said, well, but we can't give you any aid because of that. So I went out and bought a brand new 1976 Toyota Celica. Uh, which uh, a Celica was sort of a sporty car. Yeah. 
and uh, I used up my money and then I applied at Wisconsin and got really nice financial aid because actually I learned that you get more financial aid if you have a car because you have car expense. Well, isn't that interesting? I wonder if that same rule still applies. Yeah, this is a long time ago, remember? <laughs> Back in the Stone Ages, David. So what was it, what made you decide that I'm making a lot of money in the grocery store, having fun, now I wanna go become a lawyer? Okay, so that was part of the travel. Uh, I went on a uh, three-week vacation, and uh, with a friend of mine who later turned, who also is a lawyer now. He was best man in my wedding, uh, but he and I went on vacation out. We went all the way, drove to California and up the coast and back, and had a good time. I got back, and all my my three roommates were still sitting at the kitchen table playing cards, like the day I had left there. And all the food in the refrigerator had spoiled and the kitchen was a mess. And I said, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, so I applied to go to law school. Interesting, Pat. I'm going to law school because I'm my roommates are slobs and I got spoiled food in the refrigerator. I'm not, I'm not going to keep doing this. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's interesting. I also had a girlfriend at the time who was pushing me to do something a little more professional. Uh, Funny how they have a tendency to do that, isn't it? Uh, women, women. <laughs> uh, David, you're just lucky. So we're all, you said you college, college, travel, travel. When you were footloose and fancy free making the big bucks at the grocery store, where all did you travel? Um, just trips like California. Uh, been to back then. I had gone to Colorado a couple times, backpacking in the Rockies. Uh, I I didn't get a chance to travel a lot because my job didn't give me a lot of vacation time. Uh, but lots of travel around the St. Louis area, lots of concerts uh, over at Southern Illinois University, and so short-term travel. But then it, I would also go to. When I get my two weeks, I'd go to Florida, New Orleans, uh, um, wherever I could go, one each year. And did and you there weren't that many? There weren't that many years here. I only had a couple of years in there to do things. Right. And once you started practicing law, got married, had kids, did you still have the travel bug? And do you do you still travel? Well, this year we don't travel at all. Well, um, and last but, year we uh, didn't travel at all either. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say I have a travel bug. I'm much more of a homebody. My wife likes to travel much more than I do. Um, but the highlight of my year every year is uh, my social year is uh, an annual vacation I do with my four younger brothers. And uh, we rent a house somewhere, a different place every year. We rent a big house and we go and our families come uh, and I'm, one of the nice things you have children, so uh, and may, and I know they do things with you, uh, but I know a lot of families that isn't true, and I know a lot of families they could never get all their siblings together uh, every year for a week together. They would go nuts. Uh, but not only do my brothers and I come and our spouses, uh, but my kids always want to come, uh, which tells me it must be a good time if my kids, at all ages, have always wanted to go to this thing. Because you must be doing something right. Yeah, we have a great time. Uh, and it's a terrific way, I think, to travel is rent a big house. Uh, it's so much better than having hotel rooms uh, because we sit around. We, uh, we go somewhere different. All the, I mean, you can name almost anywhere in the country. And we've tried to get to that area. Um, and then one of the highlights is just hanging around and cooking together and stuff. We usually have uh, one family cook dinner each night. Um, not that we don't ever go out, we do that too. But, um, and then we, so we've been to Gulf Shores, Alabama, Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, Glacier National Park, Olympia Forest up near Seattle, uh, Maine. Um, we are, and we, we like to do active things as well. 
you you know me a long time. You probably know that I play soccer, or I did. Yeah. I retired now, but I still run. I'll do five miles tonight yet, uh, indoors because of the weather. Um, but my whole family is kind of that way. We, uh, uh, for example, on our trip to Maine, we were at a place called Acadia National Park. It's an island, and. Uh, so while we were there, we did a 100 kilometer relay race. Um, so that's a pretty, pretty good distance. That's quite a jaunt. Uh, and everybody in the race was a running club, except the Krecklers. We were just these people on vacation. Um, and we were the oldest people there by far uh, it, doing this run. Fortunately, my, my son and his wife took a couple legs and they were a little younger. Uh, but that's just sort of the way we are. We do those things. My, uh, the, the middle brother of the five of us, I just got a, an email or a, a Zoom, I don't know, a video from him uh, showing him completing on his own a 50 kilometer race. Wow. He's 63 years old. So. Well, are there five boys in your family or? Yes. Okay. So, so you appreciate my clan. Of course. <laughs> Aside from the fact that they all think you walk on water. <laughs> they haven't seen me swim. <laughs> but and we, we and this sort of active lifestyle we is carried over too. Uh, my son has run marathons and he plays soccer at age 36. My daughter is a uh, an iron man. So so it's pretty much must run in the gene, gene pool or something. Well, I just think that probably says that you can't sit still for very long. You gotta be out doing something and you might as well take the health benefits that go with it, right? I think you're right. Well, and like you said, I have known you quite a while. And I know one of the things about you is you always extend an invite. If anybody wants to come to Madison, you'll take them to breakfast. And to me that that's, that's a great mentoring opportunity. How did you get into doing that, extending the invite for breakfast? You know, I don't really know. I'm get, you, you also know that I do a lot of speaking and teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I love to teach. Um, and I know that people often don't ask questions when you're speaking. Uh, and you've seen that, they'll all come up afterwards. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know when I started it, but I think that was the origin that I felt there's a lot of questions that don't get asked uh, in a group. And so I'm willing to help you. And, and it might've actually come about uh, as a result of my pro bono work. So I'm quite active with the Volunteer Lawyers Project. It would be the equivalent of Judicare up in your neck of the woods. Okay. Um, and so I, I help train lawyers there and I take some of their cases uh, but every year I try to train them. I always feel like I can uh, exponentially increase my effect by training 50 lawyers that rather than me just taking what cases I can manage to fit into my schedule. And so to encourage lawyers to take these cases, I started saying, take it and I will help you. If you hit a snag, call me, I'll take you out to breakfast. We'll look at your case together, bring it with you. I'll help you solve the problem. And it's worked out really nicely. I get, uh, again, pandemic. But before this year, I would have three or four breakfasts a year with lawyers helping them with their pro bono cases, uh, which, which I think is great because there's a real need for those services. And, and I can't, I can do so much more helping other people take them than I can if I just take them. Well, it's a way to leverage yourself and leverage your impact in the community. So how did you get involved with the Volunteer Lawyers Project and in, in your pro bono work? Huh. You know, I don't know. It's been so long. Well, maybe uh, that's the better question. How long have you been doing it, David? Boy, I'd have to go out and look at my bookshelf. I, I'm going to guess I've been training them every year. They have a, a big annual event, uh, probably at least a dozen years. So Okay. So you are very active. I know you're active with the bankruptcy bar or section of the, the state bar. You're clearly active with the solo and small firm conference because 
that's how I met you. How do you, how do you design your day to allow you the time to do all of these things? Aside from your wife not seeing you very much. Um, well, my wife has never seen me much. Uh, I've always worked. I, so I started my own firm in 1982. Uh, I quit my job on Tuesday. I got married on Saturday, left for my honeymoon Sunday night, came back the following Sunday and started a law firm on Monday. Uh, and as you probably know, since you've started your own firm, when you start a law firm or probably any business, there's a great adrenaline rush and there's no money. So you work really, really hard for a number of years until you learn how to make money. Uh, so I've always worked seven days a week, uh, which is why I mentioned, I think I mentioned it before we went on air here that I do my grandpa's Sunday dinner yeah. on Sunday evening. So a few years ago, uh, slowly I've, I've cut back and, and you're right. My wife has a lot to do with this. Uh, one year she left me a card saying I need to slow down and smell the coffee, whatever that means. Uh, so I began taking her out for coffee on Saturday mornings before I would go to work. And we've expanded that now it's Saturday and Sunday mornings. Well, you're learning, David, it's taken you long <laughs> enough. Congratulations. And so not only do I not get to the office early on Sunday because I'm having coffee with her, uh, but then I leave early for grandpa's Sunday dinner, which usually I, I don't have a newspaper right in front of me. I have today's paper is the taste section in the Wisconsin State Journal. So I look in there, see if I have something I wanna make. And uh, there is some stuff. So this weekend, I'll probably make one of the recipes out of this week's paper. And then my-, uh, my So for grandpa's Sunday dinner, it's grandpa as the bartender and the chef. Well, or do you get help? My wife would definitely say she has a hand in this or two. Uh, she's a, she allows me into her kitchen. Um, and then and my husband allows me into his kitchen once in a while too. So I get it. Yeah. And then I pick out the, I usually pick out the recipe and then, uh, same with the drinks. Uh, I'll get all the ingredients together, have them on our counter. And my son-in-law has to make the drinks. So it's truly a family affair. It is. And so do you think and pair your, your cocktails with your, your meal? A little bit. And do you make special drinks for the grandkids then too? Uh, yeah, my granddaughter, who is... She's pretty little though, isn't she? She's two, uh, two years, eight months, something like that. Two years, nine months. Uh, she likes her wine. So we give her cranberry juice with a little water in it so that it'll fizz. And she, so that's her wine. And she has her own little wine glass. Might as well start her man. <laughs> This is Wisconsin, Sarah. <laughs> well, but wouldn't that be more beer than wine, David? Yeah, but I don't know how to make fake beer. <laughs> That's true. Um, so do you think you're living your purpose? Living my purpose. I am living a purpose. I have a purposeful life. Um, sometimes that becomes merely overwhelming because I have a lot of responsibilities and I'm sure you you feel the same thing maybe on a slightly smaller scale than I have it um, but I have about 25 people working here and I feel good that I'm able to keep those people employed um, I feel good that I'm helping a lot of small businesses and farms and, and even individuals uh, so there's a lot of purpose in my life. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not when you say purpose-driven, um, but I, I do feel like I do a, a lot of good. So what do you find most fulfilling about helping businesses that are in financial distress? Well, when we're successful, it's awesome. I mean, we, we, we've kept people employed. Um, a lot of those people are extremely thankful. Uh, that's not always true in the legal profession. I, uh, at one time, I was, I was a general practitioner at the start of my career for about 10 years. 
So I've done divorce and drunk driving and corporate and real estate and misdemeanors and you name it. I've done almost everything except patents and admiralty law. Um, and I, I don't envy family lawyers. I'm not sure people are as thankful there as, as I get. Uh, it doesn't mean that all my clients are happy, nor does it mean that I always can successfully keep them afloat. Uh, but, it, but I do know they're under a lot of stress and I at least can offer them a chance at the brass ring. I can give them an opportunity to save their business. Whether or not it works or not, I don't know. Uh, that depends on a lot of factors that don't really have anything to do with the law. Um, so there, there's fulfillment in that. Um, I have a terrific group of people in my office. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, in this day and age, there's a lot of turnover, especially lawyers come and go. Uh, but I have an amazing group of people who've been with me for years and years and years. Uh, I have, I'm counting here, I have five paralegals, probably all of who have been with me between 10 and 36 years. Um, that's, that's a lot. something for you. Yeah, and I have an office manager who's been with me. Uh, she's got a daughter who's going to med school. And so, I mean, she's out of college. And I knew her, I, she worked for me before she was married, not the daughter, the mother. Um, <laughs> so that's my office manager. I mean, I have a lot of people that have been here a long, long time. Um, what do you think the secret is of keeping them? I'm assuming that you're not a slave driver making them work seven days a week. No, no, I never expect anybody to do what I have to do or, or what I do. Well, I don't choose I, to do. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know. And I wish I did, because if I knew the answer to that, then everybody would stay here. Nobody would ever move on. Uh, so I don't pretend to know the answer. In fact, um, my one of my biggest weaknesses, I think, is personnel. Um, there are things I think all of us have strengths and weaknesses uh, and that it's really good to recognize what those are. And so I think I know what I'm good at uh, and I hope I recognize what I'm not good at. And I think one of those weaknesses is actually handling personnel in a business setting. I, I don't necessarily think I'm very good at that. Well, but you can't be bad at it if you have these employees that have stuck with you 10, 20, 30 years, given the fact that especially today, a long-term employee is somebody who has 18 months to, to two years under their belt with your organization. And you may well be right about that, but I, I, I just feel like lawyers come and then they move on. And there's reasons for that. You know, if they're working here for me, um, they, they're getting my cases. So in, in effect, I'm not exactly a solo, but I'm sort of close to being a solo lawyer with a lot of people working, handling my cases. So we may have about 25 people and I think we have nine lawyers, uh, but I bring in about, it's gotta be at least 85% of all the work for the firm. Uh, so other lawyers are working for me. And I think that for some lawyers, that's not as fulfilling maybe as having their own practices. And so they, a young bankruptcy lawyer can come here and work here and get some really great experience and then have no problem going somewhere else and being the bankruptcy lawyer in that firm, so. Well, but do you think in terms of making rain, since you bring in 85% of the, the work in your office, and I know you and I have talked about this and we've done presentations, what do you do inside your firm to help the other attorneys develop their own book of business, if anything? I'm especially working on that now uh, because I'm at an age where I would like to see them. For many years, it didn't matter. I was happy to just, yeah, fine, just come on in and do my work. Uh, but now I'm reaching an age where I actually would like to maybe work a little less um, I mentioned that I do my dinner, that's with my daughter and her family, but my son and his family are up in Minneapolis. So if we didn't have a pandemic, I would be trying to take off every Friday or at least every other Friday 
and go to Minneapolis now. Um, so to do that means that somebody else is going to have to pick something up. So I am working with them and I try to have every lawyer in our firm have a marketing plan. Um, I can't set it up for them because not everybody markets the same way. I think all of us, no matter what our occupation, certainly if we're self-employed, uh, like you and I, we're, we're always marketing. Uh, we have a brand, it is always out there. Every interaction we have with people is an interaction with our brand. Uh, but not everybody, and, and we're always selling, we're always in sales because you're selling, I'm selling right now just by being here because people see me and they either are building up trust and confidence in me based on that and on you, in you as we sit here, or, or they're not. Um, but not everybody can market the same way. So it's really important that lawyers, I think, maybe more than some other people, do their marketing in a way that they're comfortable with. Because if you're not comfortable with that method, you won't be any good at it. So I, I try to get them, I bring up their marketing plans, I work with them, uh, but some things I can help with a lot more than others. So as you know, I do a lot of speaking and teaching to me that, that I'm comfortable and I like that, uh, but not everybody does. Uh, so it's much harder for me to help people whose, whose comfort zone is more having lunch with someone else. Uh, that and there's a lot of lawyers that that is their marketing lawyers who play golf uh, to do to do their rainmaking. Um, so what I do to help them is going to vary depending on the lawyer and depending on that lawyer's um, enthusiasm for it. You know, you you, you can't the, you can as I go you lead a horse to water, but you can't yeah. make them drink. So so I can tell lawyers that they should be marketing and they should be writing articles or they should be going to this networking event or what it may whatever it may be uh, but you can't make them do it and so some people want to do that and others do not you've probably seen that yourself either in the firm you worked for or with some of your associates yeah well and you know david i did write a book that includes a chapter on that and you know sarah i did read your book and i wrote a review for the state bar Oh, did you? Yeah. I didn't know you wrote a review. I, I didn't tell it. you. What's oh, that? You know, I might have told you when, when, I, when I bought the book and had you sign my copy. You said you were going to, but I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that there was one actually. Done. I did. I don't think they've published it yet. Maybe they didn't like it. I don't know. Ah, well, thank you very much. So, and I know that Rainmaking isn't for everybody, but everybody does. We all sell ourselves and it doesn't matter what, what business or what career or what profession you choose or just in general, because everybody's a brand, whether they acknowledge it or not. Even if you're working in corporate America, you have a brand within your company and you're selling yourself to advance. Well, and in your private world, you're selling yourself to your significant other or to people, do you wanna be friends with them, whatever. Don't tell that to my wife, she'll take it back to the return desk. <laughs> I think you're outside your warranty period. <laughs> so what's the best piece of advice that you've received so far in your life? I don't know if there's a like a cliche that I could say, um, but there's a few things. Um, my first job as a law clerk eventually evolved into a lawyer position. They hired me when I graduated and I worked for a small firm here in Madison with uh, three partners. They each did different things, but I learned so much from them. And it wasn't like they were really mentors where they'd call me in and sit with me and that sort of thing. But I was able just to observe the way they practice law. I, I learned so much about detail, detail work, uh, which I think has been really good for me. And I try to impart that need to be detailed 
uh, to my younger lawyers. Um, I don't know if I have a bit of advice. Um, when I decided to start my own firm, that was a big decision. I was, and I was undecided. I didn't know whether I should leave the firm I was at, which was the one I was just talking about. They had been good to me. They hired me out of law school. I liked them, uh, but I wasn't making a lot of money and I felt I could be doing better. Um, and so I talked to a friend of mine, the same guy I went to California with, the, the lawyer in St. Louis now. And I said, Kevin, here's what I'm confronted with. I'm thinking about this. And he gave me some advice that I think maybe altered my overall career. And he said, you know, because at that time I was weighing an offer from a real estate firm where I would be doing, I would be in-house counsel doing commercial real estate. And I had quite a bit of real estate background at the firm I was working in. And Kevin said, you know, you can always go in-house or government, but it's a lot harder if you're in-house or in government and then you want to go into private practice because you lost all those years of building up your practice. Um, and I think that's true. And I took that advice to heart. And that's one of the reasons I decided actually to spurn the real estate firm and actually start on my own. So what made you decide that when you were going to start on your own, you were going to focus on bankruptcy or didn't you focus on bankruptcy initially? Didn't at all. I was a general practitioner. Oh. And so I, I did... In fact, um, I've heard people say that it's called door law, that I'll represent anybody who comes in the door. Uh, and so when I think back on it, my life has had sort of some trials and tribulations. Um, so I, I had, I started this law firm, as I said, right after I got married, same week. And uh, there were three of us. I had no clientele at all. They both had some clients. Uh, you could fit all of my clients' files into a banker's box. That's, that's how many I had, like two. Um, but they brought me in as an equal partner and I did all the administrative work. Uh, so there's nothing in my law firm that anyone does that I haven't done before. I know that feeling. Yep. Right. So I've done payroll and I've bought copiers and I, I've fixed things. Uh, I've actually chased down birds that got in and bats. And uh, I've also chased homeless people out of the restroom. And uh, I've, I've dealt with clogged toilets, you name it, I've done it. Um, but that gets a little bit out of this. So I was a general practitioner with these guys. Um, and how I got into bankruptcy uh, came about, I didn't plan it. Uh, I had a case in Iowa County, which is one county west of Madison. Uh, and at the time, Iowa County was a very, very rural county. Uh, right now, Land's End is out there. So, I mean, they've got a big business. Uh, but at the time, I, I was representing uh, the owners of a feed mill. And the feed mill was one of the largest employers in Iowa County. It probably had maybe 30 people working there. And uh, Iowa County is not a large county. It still is not but I was representing these owners and every other law firm in the county was on the other side. They all represented creditors. And uh, I'm this young guy, this would have been, I had probably been practicing um, four, three to four years at the time, maybe, maybe I don't think five. Um, and so I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but I, I, with a lot of hard work, and a lot of, probably a lot of luck, I got a really, really good result. Um, and this would have been 1983. And that was the start for any of your viewers who are old enough to remember the farm crisis. Uh, that was the start of the farm crisis. So here I am representing an ag related business in a rural ag county as the farm crisis, farmers are just starting to have problems. And so a couple of lawyers in Iowa County referred their farm client to me. And I, hard work, you know, if you're going to work seven days a week, you may as well spend your time being the most prepared may person well in the room. Count. Yep. So I was always the most prepared person in the room. 
and I got good results for the farmers that I represented. And farmers, it was a unique circumstance because here's this whole industry of people who are all having the same problems at the same time and they all see each other because farmers see each other lined up at the feed store, at school, at church, wherever they all are, they're all seeing other farmers. So word of mouth just went boom. And my practice started growing and growing. And it was a practice area where there were no bankruptcy lawyers in Iowa County. And there were no bankruptcy lawyers in Lafayette County. And there were no- Were there lawyers. a lot of lawyers in either of those counties to begin with? No, but there were no bankruptcy lawyers. There were general practitioners. The only other bankruptcy lawyer between Madison and the river was Mark Bromley, who I mentioned earlier in Lancaster. And so Mark and I pretty much had the entire farm market between us. Of, of that's how my practice grew. And that would have been around 83. By 1990, I was doing nothing but debtor creditor work. And you represent both sides of the equation, right? You have some banks and creditors that you also represent. The, by 1990, I had reached the point where banks were coming to me saying, we don't want you on the other side. We want you to represent us. And so my practice between 90 and 95 was about 50-50. And what that ended up doing was creating lots and lots of conflicts. Yeah. And some were waivable, some were not. So by about 1995, I had to make a choice. Am I going to represent debtors or creditors primarily? I mean, I still do some creditor work. I, I picked up a, a just this afternoon, an Illinois family law firm uh, asked me to represent them collecting their fees from a debtor in Wisconsin. Uh, so I'll still do some creditor work, but primarily it's debtor work. And I made the choice. Uh, I'm not sure it was financially the best choice, uh, but I made the choice based on the creativity allowance. It is. It requires a lot more creativity and strategic thinking to save a farm or a business than it is to put it out, put it under. So I like that, the creativity and the strategic thinking. And I do a lot of thinking outside the box and trying to be creative and coming up with solutions that aren't abundantly clear for a lot of people. Do you find that to be one of the one of the reasons why your clients are come out of this satisfied that you don't go into it with the impression of we're going to close the doors and this is how to do it? Sure. Um, so I mentioned earlier strengths and weaknesses. So strengths, one of my strengths, I think, is strategy. And some people might call it creativity. I don't necessarily believe that I'm creative. I do believe that I study a lot and I read a lot. And to me, creativity is something you've stolen or borrowed from someone else. Nobody just makes things up themselves. It's always based on something else that we've seen. Um, so I, I do a lot of you might like this. So because you're you're heavily into practice management and, and that sort of thing. So instead of reading law management books, and I've read plenty of them, I'll read accounting or engineering management books and see and then think about how can I adapt this to law. Um, so that's in running my practice. Uh, but other people look at those kinds of things then. And the same with law. Um, I, I'm sure not a, not 48 hours goes by that I haven't read some law, some legalese. I don't mean law management. I mean, real law cases or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it's amazing how then somehow a week later, that case, that situation will come up. Um, and so if you so, could see my basement, um, or even my bathroom. So in my bathroom, on my side of the counter is a stack of cases. And while I'm brushing my teeth, I will read, start reading a case. And it may take me three or four days of brushing my teeth to get through that case, but then it, then it leaves the bathroom and I do something with it. Um, 
And so one way to time how long you're brushing your teeth there, David. Right. <laughs> so I get my creativity, I think, just from study and finding ideas that maybe I can adapt somewhere else. Uh, but I do think that's one of my strengths. And strategy is a little different than creativity, I think. Uh, strategy, I think, has a lot to do with at least strategic thinking might have a lot to do with how we're brought up and what we do when we're young. So when I was little, my mom had me playing card games at a really early age. I, was, I remember playing Canasta when I was about five. Um, and I was always big on board games. And I think that that actually was good. I think it really helped me. Um, I think it helps me now. Uh, that because I always was both competitive and dealing with games that involved thought and strategy rather than chance, um, I think that was a really good background for me. I, I would tend to agree because I'm kind of the same way. And the other thing that I think helps, I'm, I like putting together puzzles and I look at all my cases and all of the stuff that I work on almost as a puzzle that everything needs to fit together, but how do you need to turn things and manipulate them to make them work? And have I seen something like this before? Can I beg, borrow or steal from another case or something I read or something I watched? And it's really interesting how things work together and they meld together. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I look at everything because my practice is so focused on financial problem solving. I'll take almost anything that I see and try to adapt it to that, that area, kind of like really good comedians can look at anything we do in life from a different angle and, and see how funny it is. Uh, I sort of do that with law. So I don't, uh, I tweet and I put up articles on LinkedIn. Uh, so for example, uh, I'm trying to think of what I just did today. Um, yesterday I did something about, uh, because we're in February, I, I wrote an article about um, goldfish. And in Sweden, you're not allowed to have a solitary goldfish. Um, okay. You have to have two, which fits in with love and Cupid and Valentine's. We have to have a couple. Uh, and then, so then the thought occurred to me, goldfish. I wonder what, what can I find out about goldfish in bankruptcy? So I want to tell you, I'm always studying. So I found out that the goldfish restaurant had filed bankruptcy and I wrote a little short article about it. Uh, and it didn't last, the bankruptcy didn't last very long, uh, but it was dismissed. Uh, and so my comment on that is sometimes when, you're, when a restaurant is dealing with creditors, it takes a bankruptcy to bring the creditors to the table. Pun intended. Right. Well, <laughs> that would explain why your newsletter for your firm is so entertaining. I love those little things. And I always, it, it amazes me how you find just the right thing to wrap into a story in your newsletter. I just remembered today's. Today I wrote about the first singing telegram. Um, oh, do tell. So today, this date in history, uh, Postal Telegram Company claims to have introduced the first singing telegram. Uh, you can still get them today. They'll, they're a little pricey. It'll cost you 25 to 100 bucks or so. Uh, but the Postal Telephone Company later went bankrupt in 1935 and was eventually bought by Western Union in 1943. So I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a student of history as well. I really like history, uh, but I really like bankruptcy history. And so I come up with these little tidbits that I read about and learn about, and then I like to write about them because I, and I try to tie it to something like today's date in history because I just think that's really interesting. So where do you find the, your bankruptcy history trivia? all over. I, I, I look at anything and I say, well, I wonder how I can tie this in. Uh, in. In the paper, our paper down here, the Wisconsin State Journal, 
uh, every day they have this date in history. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll look and see what's in there and I'll say, ah, oh, I could write about that. So for example, today had an article, had a little blurb uh, that today on this date in history, Mike Tyson was accused of rape. And I can't remember the name of the woman, but I remember Mike went to prison, the boxer. Givens, wasn't it? Hmm? Robin Givens, well, she was his wife. Maybe, but... I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, but anyhow, that I happen to know, I remember that Mike Tyson already also filed a bankruptcy. He did. So I made a note and I'll figure out when Mike Tyson either was released or went to prison. And on that date, I'll put out a little blurb about Mike Tyson and his bankruptcy. <laughs> You're amazing, David. But you know, it's, I enjoy this. I enjoy that history part of it and tying it to what I do for a living in a oh, fun sure. way. And so that makes it all fun. It is fun. And it also sheds light on how everything does fit together. And that bankruptcy, granted, I don't think it has the stigma that it used to have, um, but how it's been an integral part of our entire society for decades, whether you realize it or not. And then you look at like the life cycle of a company, whether it's infant, um, teen years, adult, mature, and what happens to it then? Does it transcend to something different or does it just kind of fade away? You are right about that. Uh, I didn't get a chance to write an article this year, maybe next year. Sometimes I get busy, but I store these ideas. So if you went back and looked, Every year at the Super Bowl, I don't know about your family, but we all look at the commercials like a lot of people do. And there are all kinds of uh, YouTubes on past uh, Super Bowl commercials. There's whole shows showcasing those commercials. Uh, so if you went back and looked at the first, the commercials at the first Super Bowl, most of those companies, I don't know, I shouldn't say most, a lot of those companies are no longer around. Um, so there definitely is a life cycle. The life cycle isn't the same for every business, that's no. for sure. Uh, but there are no businesses that are going to last forever, um, no matter what we do. Well, and that kind of goes with our business educations too, right? That's a, a marketing thing, a management thing, an accounting thing. It's just part of business. You know, you've known me a pretty long time and, and I, you, you, I think you know that I have a lot of sayings or cliches oh, yeah. or rules that I apply to myself and, and my firm. So I remember doing a seminar with you once on, I don't remember the exact title, but the care and keeping of clients, I think is what it was. Uh, we did if it, not, that's a clever title, David. I think you came up with it. Um, oh, well, go figure. <laughs> uh, but I talked at that seminar about my two-day rule, and uh, and I know that, that you commented on that later. My two-day rule says that if we have something due on Friday of this week, we actually have it done today, so that we not only are going to beat our deadline, but we also have time to sleep on it tonight and look at it again tomorrow to see if we want to make any changes or improvements. And uh, so my whole practice is built, I think, I think I can reduce it to about 10 or 12 rules like that, that I sort of live by. Um, and uh, when you were talking earlier about your puzzle and piecing things together, I was equating, I do the same thing a different way. So you're saying, I know I can solve this. I, I got to piece this. One of my rules in our firm is that there is no problem we cannot solve. Um, so pretty, pretty much the same substance as what you're talking about, but just with different verbiage. Uh, so that's one of the many things that I believe in. And I think that if you have that approach, it will almost force you to be creative. Um, oh, yeah, because nothing is impossible, right? There, there always has to be a way. I agree. So your David Kreckler rules, do you actually have them reduced to writing and have them plastered where your 
your team can see them? They are not plastered. I have been asked just recently, we have, an, uh, we have a weekly attorney meeting. It's on Wednesday afternoons. We had one today. Uh, and two weeks ago, one of my lawyers said, you know, you got to write these all down for me so that I can really have them. So I'm, I'm, in the, I'm gonna be in the process of doing that along with an explanation of what each one means. Uh, but I am sort of a, I hate to say it's a cliche driven person because I don't really feel that they're cliches. They're more like proverbs or uh, I'm not sure what to even call them, wise rules of life or something. Um, but I have a lot of them and I, I am going to get them all written down with what they mean. Uh, and, and even my firm as a whole. So does your firm have a motto? We listen, we care, we solve. Okay, I like that. And we have one. Ours is we help quickly. And each word means something uh, to, to us. I, I, I don't have to go into what they all mean unless you really want me to. But, but each one of those words has a lot of meaning behind it as to how we came up with that. Well, so does ours. And, and it's, it's kind of fun. You know, David, I think a number of years ago, you told me you were going to write a book. I did. I just haven't published it yet. It's about, uh, it's about a 95 page manuscript right now. And it, it will get published. I'm going on the record in public saying <laughs> it will get published this year. I'll hold you to it. What's the title? I don't have a title yet, um, but it is basically, you'll probably actually like picking it apart uh, because it, it's about running a law office and it's about the three legs of the stool. And maybe that's what I'll call it, something like that uh, for private practice. For lawyers like you and me, there are really, in my opinion, there's three things we have to be good at. We have to get the work, we have to do the work and we have to get paid for the work. And so the, the book is divided into three sections uh, along those lines. Are your rules incorporated into the second part of that book? They show up a little bit, but I'm actually working on the next book, which is gonna be something like the 10 commandments of running a law practice. And they'll okay. all be in there. Each one will have its own chapter in there. That's kind of where I was going. That's what I would envision is that I'm sure each one of those would be a great chapter and you probably have a plethora of stories that could be incorporated in to highlight the effectiveness of each one. You know, I don't know that I'm very good at writing about that sort of thing. Um, and, and so, maybe I need to add more of myself into it. So in your book, you brought a lot of your life into the book. My book is much more written like a textbook, uh, which maybe will make it not so interesting to read. Yours is great, easy to read, a lot of fun. Maybe mine won't do that. Maybe, and, and actually my editor, uh, the woman who's editing it for me right now, has already commented and said, you need, to, you need to bring some personal stories into this. Uh, so maybe by the time she's done, we'll have some of my person, personal stories in there. But I, it, I don't ever think that way about myself, that uh, I should write about me. I, I, I usually write about what can I teach. Yeah, but think about, you sat through enough of my presentations. I think people learn by, here's the point, Here's a story highlighting the point. And now I'm gonna tell you what you just heard to remember the point. And the one thing when you, you're using your own stories, you don't have to try to think about what the facts were because you've been there, done that. And I don't, what I should do is actually have my stories like logged or in a database or something by topic but it's like God, divine intervention that when, I'm, when I need a story to prove a point, it just shows up. 
And even if you're not very good at, you don't think you're very good at telling stories, I would beg to differ. But maybe you have a conversation with your editor if she's doing any of the almost like ghost writing for you. No, I wrote it all. She's just. She's massaging. just editing it, massaging it. But maybe you start telling, you have a brainstorming session and you have a recorder going and start talking about one of the points. And during that discussion, a story is going to materialize. And especially if you're targeting lawyers going out on their own, what better way than to have your story of, I'd been practicing law for four years, decided, oh, I'm going to quit my job, get married, and then open a firm with like two clients. And here I am all these years later, and I have a team of 25. How, you know, that's, a, that's an inspirational story. And I know that there were trials and tribulations along the way, and those trials and tribulations probably led to your rules. I probably all always had these rules. I probably just didn't know it. It takes a long time to realize that the way you're living can be expressed in, in these sorts of rules. And we probably actually have these same kinds of mores or norms in our personal lives as well, Absolutely. that we could actually write it down and, and, and boil them down to certain things that we do, ways we live. Uh, but we don't generally do that because we're not normally thinking that way. It, isn't it amazing what happens when you shift your thinking? <laughs> and, and you shift it to asking why? Why am I doing this? Why do I do it this way? And some real pearls of wisdom come with those, that question. And it's a very simple question, but it's very complicated at the same time. Yep. All right. So just a couple more fun questions. I know you said you prefer to stay home, but your wife likes to travel. Do you guys have a dream vacation on your bucket list? And if so, what is it? I already gave it to her. I took her to Ireland. Remember I said she's she's very, very Irish. Yeah. Uh, so we've already been to Ireland. So her dream vacation would be to go back. <laughs> um, we both would like someday, if we didn't, have, but our grandchildren are here. If we didn't have grandchildren here, we'd like to own a, a small house on the ocean, preferably somewhere like either California or the Gulf side of Florida so that we get sunsets. Uh, but I mean, I mean, right on the ocean. I want, I want to go out my backyard and that's my beach right there. I don't, I don't want to have to pedal there on a bike. I don't have to cross any streets. I want the ocean there. You want to walk out the door we'll ever, into the sand and there you go. I don't know if we'll ever do that or not. Uh, but we'll, that's sort of our, it's not a vacation. It would be like a permanent vacation. It would be a, we'd still come back here for summers because is there a better place than Wisconsin in the no. summer? Uh, but, and I look out the window when I get in my car tonight, would I rather be uh, in Naples, Florida? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, let me see. 20 below, 80 degrees above. Hmm. Tough choice now, isn't it? So we had brought up or discussed the, the complications or the, how different last year was with the lockdowns and everything. What's one thing that you learned during the lockdowns that you're going to incorporate into your life? How to Zoom? <laughs> how to do this? How to get techie? I, I don't think I'll ever be a techie, but I, I do Zoom and it works. It's working right now. 
And so if I had to pick one thing off the top of my head, that's probably it, that I have learned that I can actually function like this. Well, and you even got the whole background thing going, which I got my real background going. So there you go. You're a step ahead of me even, David. And one final question. What is one thing, if you could simply snap your fingers without any, any work required, what's one thing that you would change about today's society? Hmm. Society in general. I wish that we could have, so society sort of implies politics because it's so pervasive. And I wish that people could actually have a discussion of pros and cons without it devolving. And I, I see this even with friends and I don't care what side they're on. It's very, very difficult to have a logical discussion, I think, these days. And I, I wish that as a whole in society, we, we looked more at logic um, rather than emotions. I think we would be better served. I would tend to agree with that because emotions can run high, but if you take it down, and strip the emotions and just communicate and try to be logical. To me, being logical kind of goes along with common sense. It's not so common anymore. I've often thought that lawyers should be required to take a course in logic. Uh, I, I did. Um, so I, and I, I've often thought that that's been good for me as far as reasoning and coming to conclusions. Uh, and I think lawyers, maybe even more than, than most people, would benefit from having taken logic, maybe as a senior in high school or sometime in college. It's something to be said for that. And that goes, the logic goes along with your strategic approach to things. Probably. I'm, I'm, I like to think that everything I'm doing makes sense. Well, that's a good thing right? So David, I certainly appreciate you spending some time with me. And even though I've known you a long time, I learned, I learned quite a few things tonight. So thank you very much. I hope and, you're not going to blackmail me now. <laughs> oh, I'm not that mean. I'm afraid the gorilla would come after me then or the silverback that's in front of it. But it was fun. And Check out You and Your Life on the Woman Warrior Lawyer YouTube channel. And you can check out Mr. Kreckler's interview as along with the other ones that I've done of interesting people who live life on their terms. So thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to be with you. Bye. Bye. Bye.